An important part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage is the tradition of a free pulpit and a free pew. Freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach about whatever I think would be useful, and I could be wrong about that, but you know, useful for living well and ethically in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. And the freedom of the pew, however, means you don't have to believe or do anything just because it's said or you know, from this or any other pulpit. That being said, once a year, members and friends of this congregation contribute all sorts of items and services and opportunities to our annual auction. And each year, one of my contributions is to offer to preach a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice. Not to preach the sermon written by the highest bidder. You get to choose the topic, not the content. Uh, but whatever subject you're passionate about or think would be particularly meaningful or um, provocative. So if there's a sermon topic you've been wanting to hear uh, addressed, our upcoming auction could be a chance. We've rescheduled that auction again from our typical November to May when hopefully we we'll, can have unmasked nice things again. We'll, we'll see. But that, that's coming the second uh, Saturday in May. Last year, Bob Ladner won the auction sermon, and he chose as the topic the philosopher, the historian of ideas, the political activist, Michel Foucault. Who has heard of Michel Foucault before? I know a number of you had written, like, who's that? You know, like on our Facebook, I had to look that up, which is fine either way. Uh, conveniently, although Bob didn't know this in advance, I've been reading Foucault for quite a long time now as an undergraduate double major in religion and philosophy. One of my senior seminars happened to be on Nietzsche and Foucault. This stuff is really my jam. I'm going to actually cut like about 400 words out of this because that were just a little bit too... That'll make more sense if you've read Foucault. So. <laughs> Uh, and you know, this, this is one of those places, and, and I feel this periodically with a number of our different subjects, where like, why don't we just like stop for a few months and let's just read Foucault together. Like that would be my idea of a good time. You know, we could go back and think about the history of philosophy and how in the history of philosophy, knowledge was thought of, this is one, de one definition, as justified true belief. To know something was to have justified true belief. But starting with, like, you know, truth was out there waiting for us to find. It was more about finding than making. Starting with Nietzsche, though, Nietzsche talked about truth as just as much about will to power, like might makes right. Um, and Foucault, picking up on that, talked about a will to knowledge, and he even started writing power slash knowledge in a way that was very deeply indebted to Nietzsche's will to power. So that power and knowledge, who gets to decide, you know, history is written by, written by the victors, that's an example of power slash knowledge. They're really entwined together. Nietzsche talked a lot about genealogy. He liked to look at the history behind ideas and words. Wrote a really important book called The Genealogy of Morality, the history behind what, what we think is good and bad. Foucault, in turn, talked about archaeology of ideas. He wanted us to excavate how things came to be and these kind of frameworks for thinking. Um, you know, so. I, would love to do that, we're not going to, but you know, to sort of let's, let's go back and read the genealogy of morality and then let's you know, go back and look at that and then talk about Foucault and then we could go forward. We could look at Eve Kakofsky Sedgwick's epistemology of the closet, you know, about sexuality, of how do we, epistemology is just a nerdy word meaning study of how we know what we know 
and she wants to talk about not just how people are closeted with their sexuality, but how we set up frameworks of knowledge that that impact that. We could talk about Judith Butler's gender trouble and how gender is a social construction. All of that is deep, like the entire like edifice of queer studies is deeply indebted to Foucault. We're not going to do any of that though, this morning. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know. Let's do let's do one more quick survey. Who who like loves academic theory? Like just loves that wonky. I see a few hands, and who is like that stuff is boring. All right, I see quite a few hands as well. Totally fair, like totally both. It can absolutely be dense, jargon-filled, but I, I will say to you, for me, academic theory has been not just theoretical. It has been deeply influential on how I think about things and how I live my life, which doesn't mean it couldn't sometimes be written in a more accessible way. Uh, so when Foucault died in 1984, at the age of 57, he was France's most prominent philosopher. And in France, that actually means something, right? To be a country's most prominent philosopher. For a decade and a half from 1970 until his death, he was a professor at the Collège de France, the most prestigious institution in the French academic world. And again, that's pretty prestigious because France cares a lot about you know, the academy. His books are fairly dense and not the most accessible to read, but they nevertheless became bestsellers. That's a really interesting thing. People, even if they didn't always understand everything he was about, they're like, he's talking about something that's really interesting and important. And I, I want to explore that a little this morning. Today, almost four decades after Foucault's death, we can even more fully appreciate that he really was at the vanguard and in ways that had make him as relevant or more relevant than ever. As one historian has written, consider the topics that Foucault helped pioneer as objects of philosophical reflection, mental illness, public health. We're in a pandemic, right? Like public health, gender and transgender identities, normalization and abnormality, surveillance, selfhood. Once confined to the, major, to the margins of political thought, these uh, issues in the decades since Foucault's death have become major preoccupations with important stakes in everyday life in the Western world and beyond. So as we seek to explore both Foucault's philosophy as well as Foucault the philosopher, it's important to be aware he didn't just seek to complicate and nuance and deconstruct received categories of knowledge. He applied these same approaches to himself. And that made him in some ways quite elusive to pin down. The most prominent biography of Foucault is called The Many Lives of Foucault, because there's many different ways we could talk about him. Sometimes you hear people talk about, I want to find myself. I want to discover my true self. I want to find who, who am I really? Foucault was like, that's all a bunch of bleep. <laughs> like, he was like, there is no true self to find. He's like, it's, it's just a lot more unstable and elusive than all that. That there isn't this stable essence inside us waiting to be found. He was highly skeptical of such approaches. He was much more interested in making, creating, than he was in finding. He wanted to push boundaries. As he said in an interview in 1982, less than two years before the end of his life, I don't feel that it is necessary to know exactly who I am. That's, that's an unusual thing to say, right? I don't think it's necessary to know exactly who I am. The main interest in life and work is to become someone else that you were not at the beginning. 
The game is worthwhile insofar as we don't know what will be in the end. He wanted to be really surprised by what might be possible, by who he might be, become, experience. He was always wanting to push into as yet unforeseen possibilities. And for him, a key starting point is to often deconstruct the current systems and structures of thought that can hem in and limit our sense of what we might become, do, think, experience. As he wrote in his book, The Archaeology of Knowledge, he doesn't want to just know things. He wants to like investigate how we came to think in this way and how we might think differently. He said, do not ask who I am and do not ask me to remain the same. Let us leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. That's just classic Foucault. He would say like, Stop internalizing oppression. Stop doing the police and the stop doing their job for them. Like, stop surveilling yourself, right? Let us leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. His official academic title was Professor of the History of Systems of Thought. Professor of the History of Systems of Thought and that these systems really do change, and with each each one, we, we're just born into these systems of thought, and to us, that's normal. And he wants to see, no, it's really, things really change over time, and, and they really do affect how we think, uh, or think it's possible to think. And so at the risk of massively oversimplifying an incredibly nuanced thinker, I'm gonna give you some specific examples of what I'm talking about, but let me just say one thing. If you were actually to go read his books, you would find that they, they're much more complicated than, I'm gonna give you like a cliff notes summary of, of like a major point or two, but the way his books work, they often begin with these like, a description of a historical tableau, like some really important moment in history that he's gonna describe when things were like shifting. And so, and I just can't recreate that for you and like I've gotta go through it much faster. And then he's gonna, he does these elaborately drawn, woven together, intricately weaved arguments. So, but I'm gonna give you, this is the bullet point version. In Madness and Civilization, a, a book he wrote in 1961, the subtitle is A History of Insanity in the Age of Reason. And he wants us to think about the history of what's been declared sane and insane. He challenges us to notice that the definition of what counts as quote, mental illness has changed significantly over time, as well as how we treat people that society deems insane or mentally ill. Who benefits from those categories? Who loses out? In particular, if you or someone you love is being locked in an asylum, what system of thought made that seem possible or legitimate? You know, as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are certain things in our nation in our, and in our world that I am proud, to which I am proud to be maladjusted. Right? He's like, I don't want to go to therapy to get adjusted to this. I want to change the system, right? I want to be mal that we should be maladjusted to this. In 1963, Foucault wrote a book called The Birth of the Clinic, The Archaeology of Medical Perception. And here he's inviting us to think about the medical gaze. So how, what is the medical gaze when you go into the, the medical industrial complex? Who decides what is sick and what is well? And uh, we might, for instance, do a Foucauldian analysis of what counts as a legitimate health insurance claim and what doesn't. Who decides? Who benefits? And why? You know, and it's not like, he's not saying like medicine is bad per se. He's saying more like what Jung would say, everything casts a shadow. 
No matter what you do, it casts a shadow. And Foucault's, the, Foucault's somebody who always, he always wants to pick it up and look at the shadow side and say, like, so we've decided to do this, so what are the consequences, right? And how might we shape this differently? He, in 75, he wrote a book called Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison. How have our understandings of what is legal, what is illegal? You know, think about Thoreau and our own, you know, civil disobedience, right? That we should be disobedient to things that are unjust laws. So how is what, how we define legal and illegal evolved? Uh, we could consider arguments here like Mich uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, right? And how uh, you know, there's been real racism and how our system of mass incarceration has been applied. And finally, The History of Sexuality, a multi-volume series on how, and the fourth volume actually just came out, which would horrify Foucault. Like, so, you know, and I think, he, I think he even said at one point, like, if you really want there not to be any posthumous publications, which he said explicitly, no posthumous publications, if you really want that, you need to burn the papers yourself. Like, that, that's, that's what the history of, that's what history shows us. So they held off a long time, but finally they did publish the fourth volume of History of Sexuality in 2018. And it's about how our conceptions of what is normal and what is perverse have changed and, and why. Through these and other studies, Foucault challenges us to notice that the ways we categorize and come to think about things, they're not inevitable. They are social constructions, and we can construct them differently if we choose. They are not based on us revealing some stable, essential nature of how things really are. This realization can free us to explore how we might creatively do stuff different, though that too will cast a shadow, just a, a different one. As a shorthand for this perspective, as I mentioned at the top, Foucault eventually started writing power slash knowledge. He just always wrote them together to that you don't just have knowledge. Knowledge is always an application of power, however, however you're framing it, however you're terming it. Somebody's benefiting, somebody's losing out. You know, and, and as the saying goes, notice when paradigm shifting decisions are being made, if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu, right? Now, there's a lot more to say about all of that, but I want us to pivot a little bit and explore just a little bit of Foucault's life and the story behind how he came to write these various books. Foucault was born in 1926. He was the middle child of three children. He was born into a family in France that had significant connections and resources. From as early as he could remember, he was aware of having same-sex attraction. But he had to stay fairly closeted early on in both his early adolescence, his early adulthood, in the 1940s. There were so-called morality laws, and who decides what's moral, right? But France had these so-called morality laws that made homosexuality illegal. Here you can begin to see the origins of his interest in the history of ideas around normality and legality and what is perverse and what is normal, what's acceptable. At the, same, uh, at the same time, we'd say when, when Foucault was 20 years old, his combination of having this prominent family, this, uh, his academic aptitude and his hard work, work ethic resulted in his admittance to the highly competitive school abbreviated as ENS. Uh, I won't try to pronounce that. I took German, French, and Hebrew, not French, so I'm not going to try to do a lot of French pronunciation for you this morning. Uh, so the ENS was, at the time, an all-male elite academic institution, and that really gave him access to the old boys' network, which was part of how he uh, came to thrive. 
But I should also underscore that even people with Foucault's advantages didn't ascend to the heights that he reached. He really did work extremely hard. To give you just one example, with his French equivalent of what we would call a doctoral dissertation, uh, it weighed in at 943 pages plus another 40 pages of notes and bibliography and was the result of more than five years of research and writing. It's perhaps also important to say that Foucault could have ended up as just another obscure, you know, acad academic person writing uh, mostly for other people in the ivory tower. His books are not written for a popular audience. They're not, they're not the most inaccessible, but they're not the most accessible either. But with the countercultural movements of the 1960s, they started to increasingly attract attention, the attention of activists working for reform within psychiatry, reform within medicine, reform within prisons, reform within sexual mores, all of which Foucault's work directly addresses. Foucault was also interested not only in systemic change, but in personal experimentation, like, you know, what can I do individually irrespective of what's happening uh, in society. I'll limit myself to just two representative examples. Given the resurgence of interest today in psychedelics, indeed, Michael Pollan spoke just a few um, days ago right here in the Weinberg in Frederick, and Pollan's uh, sort of gotten a lot of press on this how to change your mind about uh, psychedelic usage. Uh, it's notable that in, in 1975, Foucault dropped acid for the first time in, of all places, Death Valley. Right, really trying to kill your ego. He's in Death Valley in California. He was a visiting professor at the time at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he described, quote, an unforgettable evening on LSD in carefully prepared doses in the desert night with delicious music, nice people, and some chartreuse, which is a uh, type of French liqueur aged with more than 100 different types of herbs and plants and flowers. He also frequented gay bathhouses as well as leather and S&M clubs. I should add tragically that Foucault died of AIDS-related complications, uh, but I share his cause of death not in judgment but in the spirit of transparency. My larger point is that Foucault was about a lot more than theoretical speculation in the ivory tower. He was out there in the streets protesting as well as experimenting with novel possibilities in his personal life. To say more, let me share with you just a little bit about the first volume of Foucault's now four-volume history of sexuality. Although much benefit has come in the LGBT rights movement from a more widespread acceptance that homosexuality is, is in some ways how people are born, not a choice, Foucault has always wanted us to notice the limitations of such categories, homosexual heterosexual. He's like, don't just call me homosexual and put me in a box and think you understand everything about me. He might say something like, you know, it's like if someone asked him, are you heterosexual or homosexual? He would say, stop trying to get me to confess, man. Like, you know, like some inner truth about myself as if there's some stable essence that then would make you again understand me. He challenged us to notice the difference between someone who engages in same-sex acts and someone who, quote, is a homosexual. The former is an action, the latter is an identity, right? And he was very skeptical of stable identities. He says they can limit us, they make us into objects of study, even of oppression or of self-repression. Stop doing their work for them, right? 
In contrast, he said in what may be the most powerful and memorable line in the history of sexuality, part one, he said the rallying point for the counterattack, so this is where we, we find our rallying point for the counterattack, our counterattack against the deployment of sexuality, as if we have some one thing, our rallying point ought not be sex desire, but bodies and pleasures. That's really worth considering. What if our starting point is not finding out what pre-existing box we should put our orientation or desire into, but rather just being open to bodies and pleasures and see what happens? Now that a growing number of people identify as gender non-binary and queer, this may seem less unusual, less radical, but it was quite transgressive at the time Foucault was starting to write. Uh, History of Sexuality Part 1 in the 70s, and it's why people are still turning to Foucault today. So, you know, if you heard, you know, people are gender non-binary, exploding the binary, right, saying, I just refuse to pick the either-or. I just won't pick male or female, homosexual, heterosexual. He just, just explode that binary, and it's just somewhere in the messy middle. Foucault would be like, yes. Uh, as I move toward my conclusion, I'll give you one of the many poignant examples of how important Foucault's writings have been to a lot of people seeking personal and social change. On the day of Foucault's death in 1984, hundreds of people gathered outside the hospital where his body lay. The crowd fell to a hush as um, Gilles Deleuze, another uh, French philosopher, one of Foucault's colleagues, uh, came to the forward and read in a voice cracking with grief because he knew that we had lost Foucault you know, far too young in age. He read a passage from the second volume of Foucault's History of Sexuality. It goes like this. What is the point of striving after knowledge if it is ensured only the acquisition of knowledge? Right? Like Foucault was just not about that. He wasn't about acquiring knowledge for the sake of acquiring knowledge. He said, the point of striving after knowledge is in a certain way and to the greatest extent possible, the disorientation of he who knows. You learn more things to learn how much you don't know and how much more there might be possible to know. What's philosophy today, I mean philosophical activity, if not the critical work of thought upon thought, if one does not, rather than legitimizing what one already knows? And how many people do that? They only read things to find, to buttress their point, right? To find people that agree with them. Foucault's like, nonsense. We should be acquiring knowledge in an attempt to know how and to what extent it is possible to think differently. And they said this a long time before Apple commodified, like, think different, right? Foucault dedicated his life to an archaeology of power knowledge, to excavating the history of our systems of thought, how they've changed over time, how they've made us more conscious of the ways that we might be part of breaking out of the limitations of the historical co context in which we find ourselves, even if we do that only regionally and provisionally and partially, as of course we inevitably do. We're just going to cast more shadows. Foucault challenges us to accept that, quote, we are freer than we think. We are freer than we think. And he invited us to use his books as toolboxes for resistance. Whether madness and civilization about the history of what is considered mental illness, you know, where are you in the DSM, right? The, the, the manual of what, where your diagnosis is. Or the birth of the clinic about the med medical industrial complex, or discipline and punish about the prison industrial complex and surveillance. Or the history of sexuality about changing standards around normality and perversity. 
He said, if people are willing to open my books and make use of such and such sentence or idea of one analysis or another, just as they would a screwdriver or a monkey wrench, right? These are just tools, my sentences, my um, ideas, to use them in order to short circuit or disqualify systems of power, including even possibly the ones mine come out of. You know, he acknowledged that, he was trying to even undercut himself. If we can do any of that, so much the better, if even one sentence or one idea is useful to you. Importantly, Foucault did not say precisely how his tools should be used, because that would, too, would undercut his point. Rather, he said, if I don't, if I don't ever say what most be, must be done, because people always wanted that from him, Foucault, what do we do? You know, how do, we, how do we do this activism? If I don't ever say what must be done, it isn't because I believe that there's nothing to be done. On the contrary, he said, it's because I think there are a thousand things to do, to invent, to forge, on the part of those who, recognizing the relations of power in which they're implicated, have decided to resist or escape them. What needs to be done ch changes with each historical context, each new moment, and from various individual perspectives. In the words of one Foucault scholar, reading with Foucault hopefully leaves us knowing a little less than we thought we knew before we began, and worrying, thinking, wondering, and reckoning a little more. It leaves us knowing a little less and worrying, thinking, wondering, and reckoning a little more. Or in Foucault's own words, it would probably not be worth the trouble of making books if they did not lead to unforeseen places, and if they did not disperse one toward a strange and new relation with oneself. Perhaps you're coming to see as well that from a Unitarian Universalist perspective, we might view Foucault as part of the second of our six sources, words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love, even as Foucault would no doubt also seek to destabilize and subvert any such characterization. As we continue to reflect on any of this that has stood out to you, let's hear our hymn, Love Will Guide Us. <laughs> 